0: Today we're going to be in Luke 22, starting with verse 31. The last time we spoke of servant leadership and what it means to be great or what it means to be a leader in God's eyes. Today we're going to talk about the concept of being sifted, starting with Peter, paralleling with the book of Job, and what it means to us. Verse 31. And the Lord said, Simon, Simon, indeed, Satan has asked for you. That He may sift you as wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith should not fail. And when you have returned to me, strengthen your brethren. But he said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Then he said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day before you will deny me three times that you know me. So in context, Jesus just got done announcing Judas's betrayal, but not naming him personally. The disciples are arguing about who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom. And now Jesus has to reveal the disciples' future failures. Matthew's Gospel adds that Jesus said, All of you, meaning the disciples, will be made to stumble because of me this night as it is written. I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. And that comes from Zechariah 13:7." Peter's story is he says, Jesus, I will defend you. And he tries to do that in the Garden of Gethsemane, as we'll see, he draws the sword to try to defend uh, Jesus from being arrested. And when he realizes he can't do it his way, he and the rest of the disciples flee after Jesus' arrest. This is a very powerful portion of scripture. He says, Satan has asked to sift you, to sift you as wheat. It's a fascinating statement. Let me just look up let me read what the dictionary has to say about sift and really take these definitions to heart as you hear it. It says, one, to pass through a sieve so as to separate the coarse from the fine particles or to break up lumps as of flour, to scatter a pulverized substance by or as by the use of a sieve, to inspect or examine with care and by testing or questioning, to separate, screen, or distinguish. The wheat sifting, the wheat processing, the wheat process. There's a few things that happen here. The stalks of the wheat are cut down, and then they're threshed, which is a nice way to say that they take them and they beat them, and they beat them until the the unusable part is separated by violence to the usable part, the kernel. And then it's gr- the kernel is ground to a meal, and then it's sifted again. And I'm discussing this in detail for a reason. My wife let me borrow one of her kitchen implements. <laughs> it's a sifter. And what happens is there's a metal screen on the bottom here, uh, and there's a, a crank, and there's metal in here that when you put the wheat or the flour in there, you turn it. And it, it's a very, very small passage between the, the metal blades and the actual uh, screening. So it takes the, the, the flour, and it grinds it, and it cuts it, and it separates it, and it makes it more fine, and it goes through, and you have your nice, finished, finely uh, floured product. Sometimes I feel like I've been in here, and somebody's turning the handle on me, and I'm sure many of you feel that way too. But if we could talk, wheat would say, hey, this really hurts, I don't enjoy this. But in the end, it becomes a staple of a basic diet that sustains life from something that's largely unusable in its original form. And Peter is going to be sifted as wheat. And we see that there's an application for us too. We are largely unusable to God in our original form. The natural man, the sinful man or woman is unusable. God can't use our egos. God can't use our pride. God can't use our lusts. God can't use our self-centeredness and God can't use our worldly wisdom. We need to go through that sifting process to get that junk out of us so we can be an empty vessel. Now let's compare the sifting of Peter to a familiar account in the Old Testament. I want you to turn to Job in the Old Testament, Job chapter 1. Job chapter 1, starting with verse 1. There was a man in the land of Uz. Whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright, and one who feared God and shunned evil. And seven sons and three daughters were born to him. Also, his possessions were seven thousand sheep, three thousand camels, five hundred yoke of oxen, five hundred female donkeys, and a very large household. So that this man was the greatest of all the people of the east. Now his sons would go and feast in their houses, each on his appointed day and would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. So it was when the days of feasting had run their course that Job would send and sanctify them, and he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, It may be that my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did this regularly. So Job is a great guy. He's a really, really great guy. And he's a... godly man and he happens to be wealthy in those days your wealth was not determined by your portfolio it was determined by your possessions so this guy's a wealthy man and also he is a picture of an interceder he says just in case my sons have cursed god in their hearts let me go make a sacrifice not only for myself but to them too okay this is the type of person you're looking at verse six now there was a day when the sons of god came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. And the Lord said to Satan, From where do you come? So Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth, and from walking back and forth on it. So even in their fallen state, you can see that the demonic realm has some type of access to God and must give him an account of what they're doing. Now this is interesting that he says, Have you considered uh, in verse 8, let me just read that first. He says, Then the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him upon the earth, a blameless and upright man, one who fears God and shuns evil? The word for considered in the Hebrew, actually some of the Hebrew words have a a pool of words, and the translators did the best job that they could contextually to interject the right translation for that. But there's a lot of words for this word that was translated considered. Uh, one of the meanings is really an, a military application. It's commensurate to a, a general who's studying a city that he's going to attack. And he considers it. He watches the people coming in and out. He looks at the wall. He looks at their weaknesses. So that when he goes to attack it, he understands everything about that city, a military application. And I like that one because I don't think God was saying to Satan, hey, Satan, you have nothing to do. There's a guy I really like down there. Why don't you go down and torture him? I believe what happened was God already knew what Satan was up to. And he said, if you've been studying my man, Job, of course God knows the end from the beginning, right? And what he did was he knew what Satan was up to and he was going to use it to his glory, to God's glory. Verse 9. So Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not made a hedge around him, around his household? And around all that he has on every side, you have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But now stretch out your hand and touch all that he has and he will surely curse you to your face. Well, Satan brings up a good point. Why shouldn't Job love you? You've given him everything that he could possibly need or want. Now, in the similarities with Peter's situation here, Satan must ask permission to sift a person, whether it was Job, whether it was Peter, whether it was you, or whether it was me. To have to ask permission to sift that person. But if it was up to Satan, he wouldn't stop. He would incinerate us because we're the object of God's affection. But remember, God is in control. He knows, God knows how high the heat can be turned up and can be set to allow purification without us being burned or destroyed. If any of you follow metallurgy or ceramics or any type of processing, any type of mass production where uh, things have to go to a plant, whether it's again, uh, I was watching a thing on the Discovery Channel about making bricks. And when the bricks are set, they have to go through an oven and it's gotta be at a certain heat to certain tolerances in that oven. If there's not enough heat, the bricks won't cure properly. If there's too much heat, the bricks will be brittle. They'll be useless. They won't stand up to the strength that they need to stand up to. So the heat has to be just right. And it's the same thing with us. For us to be purified, to be those godly men and women, sometimes in our life, and we don't like it, the heat's got to get turned up. And, but God knows just how much is too much and what we can handle. Verse 12. So the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your power. Only do not lay a hand on his person. Then Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. So, again, Satan has limited power to afflict. Whether it's Job, Peter, me, or you. He has limited power. He won't be able to push us past what we can handle. We see that in 1 Corinthians 10 and 13. Now there's an application there... In 1 Corinthians 10 about attempt, tempting, we won't be able to be tempted past what we can bear. God will always make a way out. But at the same time, the same Greek word peirasmas is also used for testing and, and affliction. It's the same word. It's just a contextual issue. Verse 13. Now with this, there was a day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their older brother's house, and a messenger came to Job and said. The oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them when the Sabaeans raided them and took them away. Indeed, they have killed the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another also came and said, The fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another also came and said, The Chaldeans formed three bands, raided the camels and took them away, yes, and killed the servants, With the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another also came and said, Your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house, and suddenly a great wind came from across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house, and it fell on the young men, and they are dead, and I alone have escaped to tell you. To say the least, Job was having a bad day. This is certainly the type of news that none of us want to get. 20. Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head, and he fell to the ground and worshipped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return there. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin nor charge God with wrong. This is Job's response. Job loved and trusted God even in his hardships. You know what? Many people would abandon God at this point in time. Many people have over the years. In John 6, verse 66 in the New Testament, it tells that Jesus started teaching some hard teachings. And it said many of his disciples had turned and walked away no more. That's a pretty telling verse in the scripture that's kind of just unique to John's gospel. And what it shows is that, is that Jesus had a lot of disciples People think, well, he just had the 12. He had a lot of people that followed him and learned from him. But in, in, in John chapter 6, it says, when Jesus started talking about some hard things, uh, many turned and walked away and stopped following him. It was too hot for them. This is, this is a little too much, Jesus. I'm out. I, I, I lay my cards down. I fold. I'm out. Verse, uh, chapter 2, starting with verse 1. Again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. And Satan came also among them to present himself before the Lord. And the Lord said to Satan, From where do you come? So Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth and from walking back and forth on it. Then the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, one who fears God and shuns evil? And still he holds fast to his integrity, although you incited me against him to destroy him without cause. So Satan answered the Lord and said, skin for skin, yes, all that a man has, he will give for his life. But stretch out your hand now and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will surely curse you to your face. You got to give it to Satan. He brings up some good points here. But the cool thing is, as devious and as manipulating and as cunning as Satan is, God made him. So as much as, and again, I don't want to be blasphemous here, but he's been around a long time, and he's very intelligent, very brilliant. He certainly has outsmarted Christians time and time again for for many years. But God made him. The mind that Satan has, God made. So no matter what you see, it's funny. People get caught up in worshiping. Romans talks about this. The creation uh, rather than the creator. We look around, and some people worship nature, Mother Earth and all that stuff. But who made Mother Earth, you know? God made it, and and it's, it's actually pretty awesome, even in its fallen state. So it just shows that no matter what you can look at and say, that's pretty magnificent, the glory always has to go back to God. <clears throat> well, Satan brings up a good point, skin for skin, because what he's saying is that self-preservation is ingrained in us. In our sinful nature, we can be helpful, we can be nice, we can be... Uh, whatever, I'll I'll do whatever for you. But often when it comes to there's an assault or uh, our our person is at stake, people say, you know what, I'm cutting and I'm out of here because it's skin for skin, it's self-preservation. I find it interesting that uh, I read that article, that uh, Periodical Voice of the Martyrs about Christians in persecuted countries, and I pray at night for these poor Christians, Lord, help them, you know, help them to be strengthened all that they're going through and the torture that they endure. I was actually reading an article about a woman in one of these countries, I can't remember where it was, who was being persecuted, and she was praying for the American church. She was praying for us because we have it too easy. She goes, we're being purified over here. God is doing a great work here. But we pray for the American church because there's no persecution. There's there's, there's very little refining process. It's it's an interesting point of view. Verse 6. He says, So the Lord said to Satan, Behold, he is in your hand, but spare his life. Then Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and struck Job with painful boils from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. And he took for himself a potsherd with which to scrape himself while he sat in the midst of the ashes. So he actually took a potsherd. If you break a piece of pottery, you'd be surprised how or some type of ceramic how sharp one of those shards are. And he took one of those things, those pot shards, and he's just popping these awful boils that he's got from the top of his head to the soles of his feet. And a lot of times we read this and we just kind of gloss over it, but think about what he must have gone through. Um, I remember as a boy having the chicken pox, and I'm sure that's nowhere near as bad as what Job's going through, but I remember the worst thing was the itch <laughs> in my scalp and my legs, all over these these things all over me. And the calamine lotion, I don't know if any of you have had that experience. But I'm sure that not only were those boils painful, but they were itchy. And he just was sitting there and just popping them in his misery, this poor guy, oozing out. It probably wasn't a good sight to see. So I just want you to get a picture of what this poor guy was going through. Verse 9. And his wife said to him, Do you still hold to your integrity? Curse God and die. But he said to her, You speak as one of the foolish women speaks. Shall we indeed accept good from God. And shall we not accept adversity? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. Wow, his wife had enough. She was done with God. But what was Job's response? Pretty amazing. Shall we accept good from God, but not also accept bad from God? Can we say that? Too many times people want God for the things that they can get out of them. And I've used this term before. Well, celestial santa claus people think i pray to my celestial santa and all my wishes will come true and many have even made a doctrine surrounding that all your wishes all your desires if you wish hard enough and pray hard enough god will give them to you but that's not always the case and honestly if we're just going to use god for what he can do for us we're a bunch of users right but god wants to know this will you also love me when things get rough That's what God wants to know. Will you, whatever you're going through, when things get rough, will you love me? God wants to know. We need to repeat Peter's words in John 6, 68. After the other disciples left, and Jesus sees them leave, uh, Jesus says to Peter and the disciples, will you leave also? Peter says to the Lord, where are we going to go? You have the words of eternal life. No matter how bad it gets, you still have the words of eternal life, good or bad. We're still following you. And that's the attitude that we need to have. A few things to take from this. Why did Job and why did Peter go through these afflictions? Why does anybody have to? I often ask the question, why do I have to? I'm a pastor. Don't I get extra favors? But, you know, there's this is certainly appropriate. And, uh, you know, this week there was a lot going on. It was, <laughs> my head was spinning. Actually, this this month, the last four weeks, people have been involved in serious car accidents. The prayer list, I mean, I'm just reading a section of the prayer list. How many people are going in for heart afflictions? How many people, aged parents are suffering? And we're like, God, why? Why is this happening? Well, I'm going to go through three general reasons, and the first two, it's not going to be it, but afflictions are sometimes the result of discipline. And as much as we don't want to believe that, that's scriptural. Hebrews 12 says that if God loves you and you're his child, like a father disciplines his children, you're going to be disciplined too. Uh, that's not the case here, I don't believe, but it's good to know that it's in there. Paul says, if I examine myself and I deal with my own issues, I'm paraphrasing, then God won't have to deal with me. The second thing is sometimes afflictions are result, a result of a sinful world. People just make evil choices. Somebody wants to rob you. You're a victim of a mugging. (laughs) It's just the way it is. Or natural disasters and disease, just the result of a fallen creation. Again, I don't believe that's the case here. The third thing, and there's there's other reasons, sometimes it's spiritual. Sometimes it's demonic oppression. Um, You know, Satan and his hordes try to break us. They try to bring out the worst in Christians. When when he afflicts us, he tries to just, mm, mm, you know, just just keep beating us down and see the worst come out. But God will take that and turn it around and use the afflictions that Satan inflicts on us to bring out the best in us. So, And I believe that's the case here. So you have a twofold thing. You have evil doing its thing, and then you have God fixing it and making it right and doing it to the glory of him. A few scriptures, if you're taking notes, Romans 5, 3 through 5. Afflictions and trials are to build character, to build hope, and perseverance. 1 Peter 1, 6-7. Afflictions and trials are faith builders. And James 1, 2-4. They're also designed to bring us to maturity and to bring us to completion. You show me a Christian who's been through a lot in their life and they're still following the Lord... I'm going to show you a very mature Christian. I'm going to learn from that person, okay? Some may protest and say, some of you may be new to this. You know, maybe this, you're reading here in the Bible for the first time and it's a little bizarre to you, maybe. It's a possibility. Some may protest and say, well, what does that mean? We're just a bunch of chess pieces and <laughs> God and Satan kind of jump us and play tug-of-war with us? What, what gives here? No. Satan tries to destroy, but God limits his power And then uses the situation again to purify us. Job became a better man after going through it. And Peter also became a better man and was restored and became a great pillar of the early church. Likewise, we (laughs) will become better men and women of God when we go through these things. So what can we learn from this? It's scriptural to be sifted, to be tested, and to fall into trials. Some people think that, and you know what, when you're in the eye of the storm... You 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 don't always think clearly, and that's why it's good to have the Bible and other brothers and sisters around. You think all these thoughts, and you don't think clearly a lot of times when you're in the eye of the storm, but it is scriptural to be sifted. It's normal at times to feel defeated and exhausted in the face of intense pressure. You're human, and you're also in good co- company. Let me read just a few things from the Psalms of David. Just a few sentences here. In Psalm 6, David says this, four verses, um, verses 6 through 7, he says, David says, I am weary with my groaning, all night I make my bed swim, I drench my couch with my tears, my eye wastes away because of grief. It grows old because of all my enemies. Sometimes we forget this. We look at David as the mighty military leader. You know, he's the man of war. If you do something wrong and you put your finger in God's eye, I'm going to slay you. And we don't realize that David was a human being. He had his rough times. Let's look at Psalm 13. I'll just read a few verses. Uh, Verse 1. David says, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? Apparently to David, God was was waiting too long, or God was waiting too long to answer him. How long will you hide your face from me? How long shall I take counsel in my soul, having sorrow in my heart daily? How long will my enemy be exalted over me? So, and that's just two examples, but they're all throughout the Psalms. David had down times. He had times of being defeated and, you know, it, it's, it's a shame to go to church and to hear all the time people throw scriptures at you. Hey, you need to just suck it up. You need to just get over it. You need to just know we're humans, we're emotional. We have our downtimes, but God brings us back up again. So, you know, David didn't lose his faith, but was, again, he was weary at times. Peter didn't stop. I don't believe that Peter stopped believing in the Lord when he fled. I think Peter had a momentary crisis. He had a personal crisis. But he became better afterwards. Hey, it happens. So my question is to all of you today listening to this, maybe to some it doesn't apply, but judging by the prayer list, I'm going to say that to some of you it does apply. Has your faith taken a direct hit recently? Do you feel much like super-Christian these days? Is there any such animal as a super-Christian? I know I haven't seen one. Are you overburdened, exasperated, some of you may even feel that maybe you're angry with God and you're feeling guilty about being angry with God. You feel that he's not listening to you. He's abandoned you. But I've got to tell you, your faith is really being tested. There's a, a fragrant resin called myrrh, you know, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And myrrh is very interesting. It has this smell, this strong smell. But in order to get the smell out of myrrh, you've got to crush it. You've got to crush it you've got to squeeze it. You've got to get the juices out of it. And you do that enough time and you really press that thing down and you start to smell the fragrance in the room. And that's the way it is with us too as Christians. Sometimes we don't exude the fragrance of Christ until we're really just pressed down and we fall into these trials and we go through these things. I remember a few weeks back I was <laughs> I was going into prayer with the worship team and uh I'm listening. One one didn't sleep well during the night. One's uh, relative was in the hospital and they all had something wrong. And I'm thinking, started to panic. I'm thinking, well, what are they going to sound like up there? And they were like, great. You wouldn't know that they went through anything because, you know, God used the beauty of what they were going through to really glorify him in worship. So the funny thing is you look at us up here and I'm putting a message together and the worship team sounds great. And sometimes things look polished, but You know what? We're human too. We go through the same things that you go through. So what's pressing you today? Think about it. I'm sure when I ask that question, something comes to the forefront of your cerebrum, right? What's causing you to run or want to run or quit or compromise or say, you know what? I'm dealing with this my own way. I prayed. I prayed for a whole day and God's not listening. So I'm going to do it my own way. What is causing you to feel like a bad Christian? Not like all the other perfect people in the church, of course. I remember when my wife and I first, when we were dating, and then somebody told us about it, a Bible-believing church, and the, the first time we walked in to the church, and my wife and I, you know, we're not believers yet, and we're holding hands, looking around. We don't know anybody. And the, the worship team comes up there, and they're playing, and, and people are singing in the, in, the, in the audience and lifting up their hands, and their eyes are closed. And we're looking around going, I think we're in the wrong place. Can somebody tell me where the sinner's section is? So we we have the wrong impression when we look around. You don't know what's going on in somebody's personal life. So, you know, it's, 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 it's all good. But in Peter's situation, I think Peter ran into a crisis because the situation was foreign to him. I believe, you know, Peter was a fisherman. He was robust in his words. He seemed impetuous. I get the picture of Peter as, uh, you know, pulling those nets up, that he was probably a robust guy, just a, a big guy with, a, you know, never afraid to speak what's on his mind. And he tried to defend the Lord the only way he could in the Garden of Gethsemane. Pull that sword. I'm going to do it my way, Lord. Look, at, if i got to die trying, I'm going. I'm going to start hacking these guys up. And Jesus grabs him and says, put that sword back in its sheath. He who lives by the sword dies by the sword. And I think Peter panicked because he thought, I'm physical, you know, and, and I'm impetuous, and, and this is the way I'm going to defend Jesus. And Jesus said, no, you can't do it that way. And Peter was, was having a crisis. Now, what do I do? So when he got arrested, he fled with the other disciples and followed Jesus at a distance. He fled. Some of you are there right now. Now, what do I do? I remember in one cartoon, they had a bag of tricks. I'm opening up my bag of tricks and there's nothing in there. It's empty. I'm at the end of my rope. What's going on here? Now's the time to let the words come off the page and take root in your heart. That's what it's time to do now. Half the battle is to know that sifting is scriptural and that you are possibly being sifted. This one pastor had such an effect on me. I only met him once. He came up from uh, uh, Miami, Pastor Raz Vasquez. Cuban guy and uh, he just said something that will always stick in my head he says you know Joe I know the Bible I know the stories I know the scriptures I can teach it you know I've been a pastor for a while he goes but then when God says to me okay now let's walk through the afflictions let's walk through the suffering he's like no 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 Lord I don't want to do that that's good for my congregation but not for me you know and I think we all have that attitude when it comes to these afflictions uh, I, I don't want to do that. I, I know, again, me personally, I don't want to do that. But I got to tell you, some of you may think, remember Charlie Brown, and um, you know, you would always hear the voice of the children, but not the teacher it was like, wah, 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 wah. <laughs> to some of you who've never been through testing and purifying and all that stuff, I sound like Charlie Brown's teacher to you. Wah, 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 wah. What's he talking about? But to those of you who've been through this, you, you hear what I'm saying. You hear what I'm saying? Okay. Verse 33, uh, going back to Luke 22. I just read it again. But he, Peter, said to Jesus, "Lord, I am ready to go with you, both to prison and to death." And Jesus said, "I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day before you will deny three times that you know me." To me, I look at this. This is the human response. Jesus makes a statement. (laughs) Now, if Jesus said something, if he was here and he said something to you personally, would you you say, no, that's not true. This is going to happen. I mean, what is Peter thinking? Jesus says, you're all going to leave me. And Peter's like, no, I'm not. (laughs) I'm going to defend you to the end. Okay, I'm wrong, you know. But I think this is the human response. People say, what do you mean, God? I got the wheel. I know what I'm doing. It's like that song, Jesus, take the wheel, you know. And some people like, Jesus, take the wheel. I got the wheel. I'm okay, Jesus. Just stay and navigate. I'm going to turn the wheel here. But he knows us better than we know ourselves. Peter thought, there's no way I'm going to deny you, Lord. But Jesus advises him to the contrary. And with us, as a Christian, sometimes we do that with the Lord. And sometimes we go through these afflictions and say, okay, Lord, I got it under control again. I'm past this this part. I'm going to go full steam ahead You know, be the passenger, I got the wheel. And that's the time when we get into trouble, when we start doing it our own way. I want to read Jeremiah 17, two verses. Jeremiah 17, 9 through 10. He says, "'The heart is deceitful above all things "'and desperately wicked. "'Who can know it? "'I, the Lord, search the heart, "'I test the mind, "'even to give every man according to his ways.' and according to the fruit of his doings. God knows us better than we know ourselves. He knows our hearts, our hearts are desperately wicked. And because, you know, we were born in sin. Uh, we're born again, but we still have that element and we, we fight it, but we still have that, that sinful, you know, sinful nature about us. And God knows how much the heat can be turned up again to purify us, but he knows that too much will break us and and and, and just take the life out of us another good scripture is john 12:24 about wheat again jesus says most assuredly i say to you unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies it remains alone but if it dies it produces much fruit the only way that a grain of wheat becomes something productive and fruitful is if it falls into the ground it dies and then the dirt covers it and water And then it it springs to life again. And it's the same way with us. So I think I'm making that point there. We have to die to self. And the bottom line is this. When we get to the point where we are broken, that's the only way that God can use us. Not to hurt us, but to build us up. To perfection, to maturity, and to completion. And you know what? The Christian life is a series of cycles of breaking and building. Breaking and building. When uh, I go to the chiropractor and I have problems, uh, like maybe muscle pains or something, and he, he'll press on the muscle and stretch it, and then he'll ask me to resist, and then he'll press again, and it'll go further, and then he'll ask me to resist. And before you know it, I'm really flexible, and it helps out the muscle. But it's that back and forth, you see, that works out real well. The process of being sifted, it happened to Job it happened to Peter. And if you are truly his, it will happen to you to some degree. Maybe not to the extent of Joe, but it will happen to you. It's happening to, and I prayed this uh, in the beginning, one of our missionaries to Guatemala. He's a 21-year-old guy. And he, for years, he, all he wanted to do is, uh, he didn't say, Lord, I, I want to build my portfolio or, Lord, I want to get this great education he said, my heart's desire is to serve you. And he went to Guatemala, and he's been there for years now. Villages, um, not a lot of glory in it. But recently, uh, I've been contacting him back and forth. He's been in bed for about five days with malaria. They don't even know. Or dengue fever. He's in some village somewhere. You know, So just keep him in prayer that he, he comes out of it okay. He has 103 fever. But I'm sure sometimes, and you know, it's funny how people, we're so personal, and we're so private, you know, uh, it's, it's our nature. And when you go through these trials, you become more of an open book. I remember asking him, I said, you know, we are praying for you, but kind of want to capitalize on your illness. Do you mind if I share it from the pulpit? <laughs> so he said, I didn't say it like that. But he said, Joe, my life is an open book. And, you know, that's what happens over time. Our lives become an open book. And the more of an open book we are, hopefully when somebody reads our open book, it says Jesus inside of there. So I'm sure he's sitting there sometimes going on, what's going on, Lord? I don't understand. I came down here just to serve you. What's going to happen with my condition? It's happened to, again, a bunch of families recently. It was one family. Again, they gave me permission to use this. Uh, Their son, they were up in Vermont, and they get a phone call and find out their son was in a really bad car accident and had to go into surgery. And they had to drive for six, seven hours straight, all the while thinking, is he going to make it through surgery? How serious is it? All these questions. But they're Christians. You know, they're godly people. And uh, that was the time to really trust the Lord. That's the time to really find out where your faith is, what's it made of. And as they go through, and he's okay, by the way. He did very well through surgery. But as you go through these things, it strengthens your faith and you learn more. And uh, they told me that, that even though it was a bad situation, it turned out for good in the end, and they learned something from it. So, and I got to tell you, it's you know I've shared this from the pulpit. Uh, it's happened to me for the last two months. I've had some physical problems. I've talked to you about the sleep things, and there's a bunch of other things I don't want to bore you with. But I've been I'm being pressed, and uh, this this sermon really struck me because it it's reminding me as I go through it and I and I study it that even though I'm in the eye of the storm at times and things seem confusing, my trust comes in this book. Okay? So, it's the process sifting in in which we face intense pressure, which purifies our faith, and when we get past the trial, our faith is made stronger. But the good news is that God is always in control. He is faithful to always complete the good work that He started in you. That's something that we can take to the bank. And let's pray.